Well, we've heard three brilliant stories of transformation this morning. Thank you, Peculiar, for your story, which reminds us of God's grace, even in some of the most difficult of circumstances. And then we heard just laterally the story of this man, we don't even know his name, who was taken to the temple, to the gate beautiful, but it was anything but beautiful for him. Can you imagine him there day after day begging at the gate of the temple, thinking, this is nothing beautiful as far as I'm concerned. But as a result of the power and the grace of God, his life was transformed. And he ended up jumping and leaping and praising God. And can you imagine that every day after that, he would come to the temple and he would see not just the beauty of the structure, but he would say, this is a beautiful place because it was here my life was transformed. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to look at another story of transforming grace, that of Mephibosheth. But before we do that, maybe I just want to pray and pray that in some way today will be a beautiful day for you. A day where, even though we might feel crippled spiritually, that God by his Spirit might come and enter into our hearts and transform us by his grace and renew his love in our hearts. What a beautiful thing that would be. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of transformation. Thank you for what you've done in Peculiar's life. Thank you for what you did in this man's life, whose name we don't even know. But you transformed his life into something of beauty alongside that beautiful gate. And I just pray that this morning, you, by your Holy Spirit, will work in our messy lives and by your grace, by your love, by your mercy, you might transform us into something beautiful for God. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Let me just introduce you to a friend of mine called Brian Galt. You'll see his picture here on the screen. And uh, Brian was born in the late 50s, early 60s, along with many others in the UK, because his mother took a drug called thalidomide for morning sickness. And of course, many of these children ended up being born with no limbs. We opened a little Christian bookshop uh, in the Isle of Man, along with the church whenever I was there. And one of the first people who wasn't a Christian who turned up in the little bookshop was Brian. And Brian wouldn't say boo to a goose. He was so introverted he would hardly even acknowledge our presence. But I was fascinated by him from day one because he would lift up his legs, maybe four feet, five feet even, and take books off the shelf with his toes. And then he would throw them on the floor. And initially I was thinking, you know, those books cost money. And then he would turn over the pages with his toes. And then sometimes he would lick his toes because the pages weren't turning over one by one. But gradually, the Lord softened his heart, 
and he came to know the Lord, and his life was transformed. I could tell you loads of funny stories. I remember one time being stopped by the police when he was driving his car. And he was being stopped for exceeding the speed limit and the 30 mile an hour limit, and also driving with no hands on the steering wheel. <laughs> but whenever the police asked him to get out of the car, they were so fascinated by all the controls and how he actually drove the car that in the end they just said, look, don't be stupid and get in and drive sensibly in the future. But during COVID, uh, the Belfast Telegraph, which is like the Glasgow Herald, did uh, an article on Brian. And they said it would be so easy for someone in Brian's situation just to end up angry and bitter and depressed. But actually, Brian has seized life. In fact, that's probably not quite true because God actually seized him. And now Brian goes all around the UK speaking, speaking on radio and television, and raising money, actually, for people who are still struggling in other countries in the world as a result of Sadat today. But as I think about Brian, with all his disability, I see someone transformed by the grace of God. And that picture came into my mind as I read the story of Mephibosheth afresh. And Mephibosheth, as you'll see here on the picture, was lame in both feet. And what happened was, let's go back maybe 3,000 years to ancient dynasties and to the times of the Davidic kings. And uh, life was fairly brutal. And uh, what happened was that whenever one king was died or one king was overthrown, then the next king would almost exterminate the remaining members of the previous family. And so what happened in this situation was that David came to the throne after Saul and Jonathan had died at Jezreel. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that the family were so frightened because they knew what was coming. The likelihood was that all of Saul's descendants, all of Jonathan's descendants, would end up being killed. And so little Mephibosheth was only five at the time. And the nurse took him, and they just ran like the clappers to try and get away, as far away as possible. And at the same time, the nurse dropped him. <laughs> And he didn't end up with no bruises like peculiar. He ended up becoming lame in both feet. Can we have the next slide, please? And uh, he ended up becoming lame in both feet. And that wasn't unusual, but it was unnecessary. Because, you see, David wasn't like the other kings. As we read in the passage, David wanted to show kindness to the members of Saul's family. After all, he had made a covenant with Jonathan many years previously. And so Mephibosheth and his family had absolutely nothing to worry about. But they misunderstood how the king would react. And so as a result, he ended up going almost into exile, 
far away from everyone in every situation he knew. And I was thinking sometimes the same can happen to us. We can end up paralyzed, not physically, but we can end up paralyzed spiritually because of our understanding of the one who is king of kings. We think the one who is the king of kings is one who is simply going to judge us harshly and show us no mercy. And therefore, we simply want to get as far away from him as possible. We don't want to pay any attention to him whatsoever. But that's to misunderstand the nature of our God. And I wonder, are there people here this morning, and you are paralyzed spiritually, unable to function, unable to enter into all that God has for you because of your misunderstanding of God. One of the great leaders of Youth with a Mission was a man called Floyd McClung. And people of my generation and probably Alistair's and that generation upwards would almost certainly have read uh, a little book called The Father Heart of God. How many people have read that, actually, The Father Heart? It's probably out of print, but it's just a beautiful little book. And in the midst of it, he tells the story of going into this art gallery in Amsterdam, and he sees this big canvas, and it's really like a big black stick-like figure. And there's a big square head and a big beak-like nose, but it's the arms that seem so threatening. The arms are virtually as wide as the body. And they just look menacing. And Floyd says as he looked and uh, seen what the title of the painting was, it was simply called Man. But whenever he read the small print, he discovered that the artist originally had entitled it My Father. And it made him think, how many people growing up, maybe on drugs and all sorts of stuff in Amsterdam that they were ministering to, had that understanding of God as that black stick-like figure, menacing, judgmental, simply wanting to condemn us for the way that we're living. But actually, the God that he knew and the God that we know is the opposite of that. I was in a church last Sunday in Sardinia, and I didn't understand much of the service, not because, well, because it was in Italian. And so during the sermon, um, I, I started trying to look at things around the church and then going on my phone and translating them. And uh, across the front of the church were just three words. And if I wasn't so thick, I probably could have worked them out myself. But whenever I put them into my translation on my phone, it was the motto of the church. And it simply said, God is love. And I thought about it for a little while. And I thought, is there anywhere in the Bible where it says, God is love, but. And yet so often we grow up sometimes even in a Christian context, 
And we see so many dimensions to God's character, which are there perhaps, but we lose sight that fundamentally and foremost, God is a God who loves us more than we can ever imagine. Now, I promised George Taylor that I wouldn't mention rugby this morning. I, I, well, I, I sort of promised him I wouldn't mention the Ireland-Scotland um, game, and so I'm not going to. <laughs> Although I was tempted to read from Psalm 36, 14, which said, but, but, but actually, I don't know whether any of you have seen a program on television called Grand Slammers. If any of you have seen it, it's on quite late at night. And uh, it's actually the story of many members of the England Rugby World Cup winning team. Ooh, why on earth was I watching it? Uh, from 2003. And many of the members of that World Cup winning team, who are now fairly old, have actually gone into a C category prison and are working alongside many of the prisoners to develop a rugby team. And in doing so, to give them an alternative way of living whenever they leave prison. And it was fascinating seeing these ex-England guys, um, you know, squaring up against some of the toughest guys in the prison, trying to teach them rugby. But one of the closing scenes this week was a guy called Jason Robinson, who was the first black captain of an English rugby team. And he was sitting in a prison cell with two or three guys who were playing rugby. And uh, they were showing a little video of him, you know, winning the World Cup and, uh, you know, holding up the trophy. And one of the guys said, you know, that must have been the proudest moment in your life. I mean, can anything beat that? And Jason, he's actually of Scottish descent, but he came from a very poor working-class background in the northeast of England. And he said this, and it stuck with me all week. He said, do you know what would have been better than winning the World Cup? Getting a birthday card from my dad. I just thought, I can't believe that. Because growing up, his father was like the image on that canvas in Amsterdam. And he said it would have meant more to me to just have had a birthday card every year when I was growing up as a wee boy than winning the World Cup. And you see, what sort of image would he have if I was talking about God as being a loving father? But that's the case. God loves us unconditionally. God wants the best for us. He loved us so much, he sent his only son to die for us on a Roman cross. And that's why there's no need for us to be afraid of God, to go and hide away, to go and end up being spiritually paralyzed and keeping God at a distance. Because that isn't the sort of God that we have. We have a God who loves us more than we can imagine. Sometimes we end up running off in fear and being paralyzed spiritually because we're struggling with a besetting sin. 
And we could spend time teasing that out this morning. But God is also a God of mercy and a God of grace. Sometimes we end up hiding away spiritually, seemingly ineffective in our relationship with God and in our walk with God, no longer growing in our relationship with God because we've simply been bruised in ministry. The older I get, the more I realize how many ordinary Christians and Christians in leadership have been bruised as a result of being engaged in ministry and perhaps feel that God has just given up on them, that they've failed. They don't want to be hurt again, but just need to know that in the midst of that situation, God is reaching out to them and wants to bless them and give them wholeness. So here we have Mephibosheth, lame in both feet. He didn't need to be because his understanding of how the king would react was different to what it would have been in reality. And so, as we read, uh, the king says, is there anybody left of Saul's household? And finally, after a few scratching of heads, I think, yeah, there's a wee guy called Ziba, and uh, he's probably living slightly undercover. And uh, bring him to me. And you can imagine whenever Ziba first came into the presence and uh, it, 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 the context almost conveys that, doesn't it? Thank you for acting it out so well. You know, he was terrified because he thought, do you know what's going to happen? <laughs> My head's going to go. They finally discovered that there's someone in Saul's household still alive. And maybe they think I'm going to end up in rebellion against them or whatever. But uh, Ziba said, yeah, 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 there, there is someone. Uh, he's the son of Jonathan. He's called Mephibosheth. And he lives in this most obscure place. In, in the, but you really don't need to worry about him because he's, he's crippled. You know, he, he really isn't going to, you know, lead any army against you. Or he isn't going to threaten you. And you almost think he said that as a way of trying to protect him. You really don't need to worry about Mephibosheth. He's miles from here. He hasn't bothered anyone for years. And actually, he's crippled as well. So just, but in the end, they go and they find him. And they bring Mephibosheth to, to King David. And at that point, he's living in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar is like in the Transjordan. It's like the wilderness of a place. It really isn't where you would choose to go for your holidays, never mind choose to go and live. But Mephibosheth was there because he wanted to get away from any threat of the king. But it was a barren and a desolate place. And you know, that's what it's like whenever we end up not in a right relationship with God. Whether we've never ever come to understand the grace of God in our lives, or whether as Christians, because of what's happened in our lives, or for whatever other reason, we find ourselves in a spiritually barren place, out of touch, out of connection, no longer experiencing the blessing of God. And whenever he's finally brought and he bows down and 
And uh, David says to him, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, give you all this land back again, and I want you to come and eat at my table. And like, Mephibosheth just thinks, you know, I feel like a wee mouse, and you're the cat just playing with me, just teasing me. All you're going to do is say all these nice things and then you're going to take me out and get rid of me. Sorry, can we just go back a slide? And, uh, and the reason is because he was unable to comprehend grace. David says, I want to show you kindness. Almost literally, I want to demonstrate grace to you. And he just couldn't grasp it. And so again, maybe you're here this morning and you've been spiritually a million miles away from God, living in a barren, desolate place, out of connection with God. God says to you this morning, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you more than you could ever imagine. And whether it's been your fault or whatever, you know, whether you've messed up or whether somebody, I want you to come back and I want you to know my grace. I want you to experience my love. I want to demonstrate my mercy. And you know, that's a work of the Holy Spirit to help us understand that God wants to show us kindness. But if you remember nothing else today, I want you to remember this. God wants, like King David, to show kindness to you, to bring you into a loving relationship with himself or to restore that relationship that once you had. And of course, that's the final picture of the story in this last slide, where Mephibosheth is eating at the king's table. That's what the king said. He says, from now on, you will eat at my table. And I was just imagining this big banquet. And uh, he says, I'm going to treat you like one of my own sons. So imagine this day, you know, where they're having a, maybe this was like it was every day. And there's David at the head of the table. And the door opens. And uh, in walks Joab. He's the captain of David's armies, his greatest general. And he marches in and takes a seat, perhaps to the left of, of David. And then the door opens again, and in walks Amnon, the firstborn of David's sons. And again, he walks very nonchalantly down the table and takes his place at the right-hand side of King David. And so it goes on and on and on. In walks Solomon, like Solomon with all his brains and like no wiser person in the whole kingdom. He walks in and he takes a seat alongside. And then maybe in comes Absalom. Absalom, one of these guys that you just think, why wasn't I born with those good looks? you know, with a long hair, and, and uh, he just, you know, 
He probably loved himself, but everybody else loved him as well. And then maybe Tamar, who was like a beautiful half-sister. All these magnificent characters coming in one after another, taking their rightful place as sons and daughters of the king, sitting at the king's table. And they're about to serve the food. And David says, hold on a minute. There's somebody not here yet. They're always a minute later than everybody else. And the door comes open again. And in shuffles Mephibosheth. He's still crippled. But he now realizes he's a son. And he comes in and takes his place alongside all of those other children of the king. And you see, that's the invitation this morning. Is it time to come home? Is it time to come back to the place where you really belong? A place of nourishment, a place of privilege, a place of intimacy, a place where you can begin to grow again in your relationship with God. Maybe, as I said, you've never, ever experienced the kindness of God in your life. But actually, that's what God's ultimate plan is for you, is that you come to know him and love him and know that you're his child, that your identity is rooted in him and in nothing else. And to realize that whatever else is happening in your life, whatever else is happening in the world, that you are the treasure in God's eyes. Or maybe you're someone who has experienced the grace of God at some point in your life. But for whatever reason, because you've ended up with a distorted image of God, or because of stuff you've been struggling with in your life, or because you've been bruised over recent months or whatever, you find yourself in Lodabar, in a spiritual wilderness. God, by his Spirit, would say to you this morning, do you know, that's not where you belong. Come back home. Come back and sit at the table, along with the sons and daughters, because that's how much you mean to me. So let's take a moment to pray. Maybe we could stand together. And maybe just under your breath, but in your heart of hearts, you know that it's time to come home. Why don't you just say prayerfully in the deepest part of your being this morning, Father, I'm coming home. Will you do that just in the quietness of your own heart? Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Father, today, I'm coming home. Father, thank you that you are a transforming God. Thank you for how you've transformed Peculiar's life. Thank you for how you've transformed the life of that man at the gate beautiful. 
Thank you for how you transform my friend Brian's life. And thank you for showing to us, as in the life of Mephibosheth, that you are a God who longs to display kindness to each one of us. By your Spirit, help us to receive your kindness and to experience your grace afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.